Hello, everybody. Jace here. Quick message before we get to the main episode. Uh, you know, I try not to get too political on the show. Maybe if that's something that really interests the guest, we might get into a little bit of politics, but mostly we're here to just celebrate comics. But uh, I can't ignore what's going on in the world, specifically the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. So uh, on our Twitter, pinned as the tweet, is a link to UNICEF which is an organization that focuses on uh, areas of the world where there is a lot of strife, war going on. Specifically, they try to provide clean water, medical care, and other uh, essential needs specifically for children and families. So regardless of which side of the fence you're on, whether or not you believe that one side or the other is right or wrong, uh, we can all agree that children and their families shouldn't be suffering for the choices that their leaders are making. So please, if you have a few dollars, uh, every little bit helps. You can go to unicef.org, that's U-N-I-C-E-F dot O-R-G, and just look for the Ukraine appeal. Click there, or you can go to the Comic Source Twitter account, and the link is there for you to donate. So uh, again, appreciate the support, everybody, and I uh, hope you're all being safe out there. Welcome to another episode of The Comic Source. This is your New Comics Wednesday episode. Apologies for it coming out late. We had some delays in getting our press preview copies for some things. And so, uh, yeah, a little late. Uh, really like to have this out for you guys first thing on Wednesday, but it is what it is. So anyway, let me go ahead and dive into some books for this week. Uh, we do know that the X deaths or 10 deaths of Wolverine number four was delayed a week. So it's coming out at the same time as the 10 lives of Wolverine number four. So uh, they're still both really good. They're still, you know, according to Marvel, going to set off the next stage of the this corner of, of the Marvel Universe, the X-Men corner. So in the same way that House of X and Powers of 10 launched the Dawn of X, these two series are going to launch the next stage, which I find to be really interesting, being that they're both focused on Wolverine, or at least that's the name of them. Uh, but they're really so much more than that. A lot of Moira McTaggart uh, in the uh, the Ten Deaths of Wolverine, and then obviously the the other one where he's jumping through time has a lot of uh, Jean Grey and Professor X as well. So, anyway. A Ten Deaths of Wolverine, number four, written by Benjamin Percy. Federico Vincentini is the artist. Ijo Lima does the colors. Corey Petit on letters. Tom Muller on design. Uh, so Moira is still on the run. She doesn't have her powers anymore. If she dies, she's not resetting the timeline. Obviously, Wolverine is going after her along with some others. Uh, other Wolverines, I guess you'd say, Laura, Gabby, Dakin. Um, so the other part of this is that, you know, once uh, Moira had her powers taken away, she also found out she had stage four cancer. 
So it's not enough that she won't reincarnate. If she dies, she, she, her time is very limited. So it's kind of hard to know what exactly Percy's going after here. Again, this idea that these books are, are leading into the next stage of um, second stage or what have you of the, the X-Men books is, you know, I'm not sure how it all fits in yet. It's really kind of strange because these do feel like very small stories in a way, you know, when with house of, X and powers of 10 Hickman writing, it felt very grand and it felt very big, but these two books, you know, this one definitely feels like it's, it's just about Moira. And I get that she's real integral with her dying and, uh, you know, having lived the lives before her being born again and kind of resetting the timeline in a way. Um, And she has so much knowledge from those lives that she's led. So clearly she's a, you know, a powerful character now that she has the uh, the powers removed, she doesn't reincar- reincarnate anymore. Doesn't mean she's any less important because she still has all that knowledge. Um, but again, this is just Wolverine and the, the other uh, versions of him, I guess, the Wolverine family going after her. Um, and I mean, I do sort of, I guess I'm on Team Moira in a way, um, only because of, of and I get that it's a little fascist and not exactly heroic for the secrets to have been kept by Professor X and Magneto and Moira and Moira even hid her existence from the rest of the mutants. But they, I mean, it was for noble causes. I, I guess in this case, I'm on the side of ends justify the means. And I know some people aren't. And, you know, it makes perfect sense why Moira didn't want Destiny around. And, you know, Mystique is going to do everything she can to have her wife resurrected. And then when she does, you know, the way they're acting they act as if they know the future and, and there's arrogance there. And I get that there's arrogance on the side of Moira as well, but I mean, we, we've seen glimpses of that future. So um, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. I am enjoying it, but at the same time, now that Hickman's kind of left and, you know, granted he left his roadmap, this, I don't know if the X-Men, you know, this kind of storyline that's been playing out over the last, what, four or five years now. And what we've talked about this before, like, how do you ever go back? Because, I mean, this is a, a darker, kind of a darker look at the mutant corner of the Marvel Universe. You know, with this idea that mutants are going to lose, humans are going to lose, machines are going to win. Like, how do you how do you pivot away from that? Like, I get it. It's a possible future. But at some point, don't you want to be able to stop telling a story where, you know, a possible future is mapped out? You know what I mean? Like there's been different eras of the X-Men and this is certainly an era, but at some point, don't you want to be able to pivot away from it? Can you ever? Is Krakoa just going to be a thing forever now? You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, I mean, the whole X-Men universe, it, it takes itself very seriously now. And if you wanted to pivot away from that, tell more lighthearted stories, I think you have to get, a, get completely away from what Hickman established. Well, how do you, how do you do that? You know, um, with the state that it's in now. So, I mean, maybe that's a, a bigger question or whatnot, but in, in terms of this story, you know, again, don't want to spoil, but uh, a lot of action where makes some decisions and uh, I'm not sure how many issues this is. I think it's six. And this is issue four. So there's two left. 
And other than us getting a resolution to this Moira plot line, is she going to live? Is she going to die? Is she going to get her powers back? I'm Again, I'm just not sure where this is going. It's a lot of action, but I still don't know what this is in a lot of ways, you know, other than Moira's revenge tour, I guess you would say. Um, it's a little easier to kind of understand what's going on in the 10 lives of, of Wolverine number four. This one is also written by Benjamin Percy. It's almost a character study of Wolverine in a lot of ways. We have Joshua Casera with Federico Vicente on art. Frank Martin does the colors, Corey Petit on letters, Tom Muller on design. It, it continues to be a lot of fun just watching uh, Wolverine kind of quantum leap his way through his own previous lives. This one, we get a lot of scenes from Weapon X. We also get um, some stuff when Wolverine was infected with Venom. Venom, um, that's something I really don't care for at all. Like, I didn't read Donny Cates' Venom. Absolutely no interest in it. I'm not a big Venom fan, even before Cates got a hold of him. But this whole idea of expanding upon the whole Parasite thing, I mean, Carnage was enough for me. And they brought, I know they've brought in a bunch of other symbiotes and then like it's a whole planet and it, it takes away from the specialness of Venom. And, that, and now we're to have believed that Venom was here or some sort of symbiote was here back in the Vietnam War and infected Wolverine. Now nah, that that doesn't work for me on any level whatsoever. I don't care for that idea at all. Now, uh, I fully admit I haven't read it because it, it again, the whole idea of it doesn't appeal to me. I like the idea of Venom as a singular character. Maybe Carnage, you know, is the one that, that um, you know, is an offspring of Venom. But more than that, again, I just feel like it. you're lessening the impact of Venom by making a ton of them, you know. And then I like the idea of, hey, the first one being, uh, you know, brought back by Peter Parker from the, um, the Beyonder planet. So this idea of uh, a symbiote on Earth before that, infecting Wolverine, whatever, it's just, I, I don't care for the idea at all. So it's kind of weird to see uh, that version of Wolverine here um, with the little spiral on his forehead. And it, again, it's just not something I care to see or even acknowledge that it exists. You know, maybe I'm a little with my head stuck in the sand, but I just don't like it. Just don't care for the idea. And uh, I mean, Part of it is the fact that, so, I mean, I read Weapon X by Barry Windsor Smith, you know, that was in Marvel Comics Presents. And at no point did Wolverine Venom out in that series. So where exactly does this fit? Like, I'm all for retcons if they don't, you know, absolutely contradict stories that have come before. Or maybe I shouldn't say I'm all for it, but I'm willing to, you know, go along with them. Uh, but this yeah, this doesn't work for me uh, at all, but it is a small part of the story. The rest of it where he's bouncing around World War II and, uh, you know, the, the previous scenes where he was uh, part of the Weapon X program and he was out on a mission with uh, Maverick and, and Sabretooth and all that. I, I didn't mind that stuff. It's interesting, but much like the, uh, the 10 decibel ring, I, I don't really know where this is going going in a lot of ways. And I do appreciate at least that Benjamin Percy acknowledges the fact that just by jumping through time, just by him being there and, 
communicating, Wolverine communicating with Jean Grey and Professor X, he's got to be changing things, which could create paradoxes. So, you know, it's kind of the problem that all times travel stories have, but at least they acknowledge it here with the text page. But uh, yeah, again, not, don't know where these are going. I guess, I guess now that I'm looking at the, um, the checklist, I guess there's only five issues of these. So one issue um, of each left. So we'll see. Um, definitely feels like there's more story than that because we, I feel like we don't know necessarily the point of these stories yet. Uh, and this one feels even more removed from kind of the goings on of the, of the regular X-Men corner of the universe. Cause it's just, Hey, Wolverine's following Omega red as he jumps through time and tries to kill professor X. How is that setting up the next stage of the X-Men? I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, Okay, let me get this out of the way. Uh, up next, I'll talk about another Marvel title, Spider-Gwen Gwenverse. Uh, this is written by Tim Seeley. We have art by Jody Nishima, Frederico Blee on colors, Ariana Mare on letters. Um, yeah, I've never been a big fan of Gwen, Ghost Spider, Gwen, Spider-Gwen, whatever. Um, part of the reason is because, you know, I really liked the fact that despite comic book deaths not meaning anything, it was like the two people that Marvel would never bring back were Gwen Stacy and Uncle Ben. And I, I get that this is not the Gwen Stacy, you know, different multiverse, different version, whatever. But I don't know. Again, it, it lessens the impact of Gwen's death to have her uh, alive. And I get that this is a different version. Peter Parker is the one that died in her universe. Like, I, I get all that, but I don't know. I just don't want to read about Gwen Stacy. To me, Gwen Stacy's not around anymore. But I recognize that she's a popular character and some people seem to love her. So basically, um, this story leans into that idea of the multiverse. It leans into the idea of Spider-Gwen, kind of similar actually to the What If series that's coming out right now, where we see Miles Morales, another really popular character, as all these different heroes in the marvel universe right like we already got what if miles morales was captain america well this gwen story is kind of similar to that she's going to be jumping around through the multiverse so we're going to have gwen as thor we're going to have gwen as wolverine we're going to have gwen as the hulk and gwen as you know god only knows who um so the story makes sense here with the original gwen stacy and how she ends up kind of popping around through time um and it, it's clear that Tim Seeley has a plan and there's a lot of emotion and interesting twists to the story that get the original Gwen introduced to Thor Gwen and, uh, and subsequent versions of Gwen, I'm sure in uh, follow-up issues. And the art is uh, it's a little cutesy, but the action is big and boisterous and over the top. The color work is really great, really loud, vibrant colors which sort of suit this zany, crazy, you know, multiversal story. Um, but all that being said, again, I, I don't know. I always say you got to give at least two issues, but she's just not a character that I'm invested in. So I, I don't know. I'll, I'll, even though I say that, I'm not going to read the next issue. I probably will. Assuming I get a press preview copy, um, I'll probably check it out. But uh, yeah, I don't see myself on this for the the long haul but uh that jody nishima art is is really solid though uh and again great color work so i, th I think if you're um a younger reader a big fan of spider gwen either of those things you'll probably really dig it 
Uh, okay, up next, another uh, X-Men title. We have Sabretooth number two. Uh, the first issue was, was really quite dark. We saw some more people get exiled to the pit. Um, so this one is written by Victor Lavalli. Leonard Kirk is the artist. Rain Barreto on colors, Corey Petit on letters, and Tom Muller on des uh, design. I it The first one was so dark, and it, it kind of felt like we might finally get some growth from Sabretooth, and I really appreciated that. In this one, it starts off and we see how the other five victims that got uh, assigned, or not, I shouldn't say victims, prisoners, uh, mutants, whatever you, however you want to uh, label them, that got assigned to the pit. They go there, and obviously everything is you know, kind of an illusion as uh, Sabretooth wants it to appear, um, and it's the same old jerk Sabretooth. So in any kind of... Um, evolution of the character or growth that you thought maybe you were seeing in the first issue, throw that all out the door. None of it actually happens. Um, and instead it's, it's more about these prisoners, I guess we'll call them um, teaming up and trying to find a way out of, out of the pit. So um, I didn't particularly care for the art. It, it was a real muddy, in my opinion, the line weights were really heavy. Um, I think the transitions because of that worked really well. Everything feels very static. Um, and yeah, it felt like a step back in a way in terms of the narrative, because I'm, I'm more interested in a story where I see Wolverine or not Wolverine, uh, Sabretooth rather evolve. Like Sabretooth is such a mustache twirling villain who hasn't changed in decades. And so it's, he's boring to me like i always know what he's gonna do he's gonna you know lash out he's gonna try to kill people he's gonna be mad he's gonna be bloodthirsty like it's the same old saber tooth every time and again i just i find it boring so uh if that doesn't change i can't really see myself hanging out for for much longer and the other thing that's weird is i saw a lot of people praising this book like nine out of ten and I just don't think it's anything special. And the uh, the characterization of Sabretooth just feels lazy in a way. So I'm not really sure what they're seeing in it that I'm I'm not. Like I get the idea that uh, it's it's interesting. It's a bit of a I don't want to say a controversy, but it's um, it's definitely a, a philosophical question what the mutants are doing here, right? Like the whole idea. And Professor X admits it himself in this issue. He said, we're, we weren't going to have prisons when we built Krakoa. Uh, but, you know, they didn't expect people to be breaking any of their three laws. And the, all, all of these people have. So, you know, what, what choices do they have? So, the, I mean, it's interesting on that level from a philosophical level, but it's barely mentioned here. Um, I mean, there's more, it's more about the action. It's more about the evil hell version of the pit that Sabretooth has created in his mind and, and how these mutants are going to escape. So yeah, it's not really, not really doing much for me. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have uh, an image book. It's from the massive verse as it's come to be known. This is the, kind of the shared uh, superhero universe over at Image that contains uh, Rogue Sun that we had the first issue of last week. It also uh, is Radiant Red. Uh, 
and radiant, I should say radiant black and radiant red, which is the book I'm going to talk about right now. So we've seen radiant red in the pages of radiant black already. We even got a little bit of her origin and why she was robbing banks and um, things didn't exactly go well the first couple of times that uh, that Nathan, who originally was wielding the radiant black power, the first time radiant red and radiant black met, it, they met as enemies. So this is giving me more context to, uh, to Radiant Red from writer Cherish Chen. Uh, David Lafuente is the artist. Miguel Morto does the colors. Diego Sanchez on letters. So yeah, we get a lot of a lot of, of context about Radiant Red and why she does what she does, and um, we get some flashbacks to to younger times for her and some of the things she's gone through. Um, as a young woman. And we also see some of the consequences of the choices that she made, right? Like we, we know that she regretted harming Nathan. Nathan was in a coma for a long time, lost the radiant black power. His friend Marshall's now wielding it. But then we've seen um, radiant red. We've seen this girl sort of turn over a new leaf, try to be more heroic, but she still has all that, those bad choices she made when she first gained the power kind of hanging over her head, you know, the bank she robbed, the money she took, how does she rectify all of that? And when some of the consequences of those actions um, are used to threaten her, you know, she knows she's going to have to deal with them. So um, you don't have to have read anything in Radiant Black to pick this up and read it. You can jump in on the ground floor if you plan on reading Radiant Black and now you're like, ah, I don't know, I, I wasn't in when it started and now I can't find the issues or what have you. Uh, or you just want to read about somebody in the massive verse that, it, it, you know, from a female perspective with a female hero um, or you haven't read any of it at all, you can pick this up. It's very new reader friendly and you can get a taste for kind of the tone of the universe. They're all different, you know, radiant black and Inferno girl red. When that comes out, rogue sun, uh, radiant red, they, they all, there's a similar sensibility, but they all stand on their own. You don't need to, you, you know, you pick and choose, read whichever of them you want and you get a complete story. Also the David LaFuente art, little cartoony, little anime almost, uh, but it works really, really well for the type of story that they're, they're trying to tell. So um, this was really good. Like I, I expected it to be good, but it even uh, exceeded my expectations. It, I mean, it was really, really good. Uh, and again, I thought the art was, uh, was fantastic. So I definitely recommend it. Uh, okay. Next book I'm going to talk about is one that a lot of people have been anticipating. It's the new Punisher. Punisher number one, Frank Castle is leading the hand, um, or maybe not, maybe I shouldn't say leading the hand, but he's definitely their kind of their number one killer. Uh, in fact, this is called Punisher, the King of Killers. It's written by Jason Aaron. We have art by he Jesus Saiz and Paul Azaceta. Uh, letters by Corey Petit, colors by Dave Stewart. Again, I saw some people sort of complaining about this, and I'm not I'm not sure why, because I thought it was fantastic. I, I get that some people are traditionalists. They want the Punisher to you know, have the same old skull. They want him to use guns. Um, we've gotten, what, 30 years of that Punisher now? Like, 
you know, and, and granted, we've had a few different things here and there. The Max series, we've had the Frankencastle series, um, but it's been a while. And so I'm perfectly happy to have uh, a different version of Frank Castle. I'm fine with them getting rid of the old skull. Like, uh, yeah, it's been co-opted by uh, white supremacists. Why, why wouldn't you want to distance yourself from that? So the idea of Frank Castle not using guns anymore, the idea of him having a different skull, the idea of him being mixed up with the hand who are, you know, maybe the oldest assassins, the oldest killers in the Marvel universe. It actually makes a lot of sense when you stop and think about it. And so there's a lot of potential here. Um, So in this particular issue, we see Frank working with the hand as kind of their number one guy, their number one killer. We get flashbacks uh, about how he was recruited And we also get a scene that explains why he would ever agree to work with the hand in the first place. All this was some really beautiful digital painted art uh, by the art team of uh, Jesus Saez and uh, Paul Ezeceta. So I I really like this. Uh, It's been a long time since I've read a Punisher book and uh, just reading this this first issue and, and getting a, this kind of surprise moment on the last page that explains why Frank might be working with the hand. I, I thought it was fantastic. So uh, it's been a while since I've read The Punisher when his, um, I bought the miniseries when it came out in the late 80s, I think, or early 90s. And then the regular uh, Punisher series that started in the 90s, I had, I don't know, the first 50 issues of that or so, which I enjoyed. Um, but I haven't really read much Punisher since then. Uh, again, he's been a character that, in my mind, he hasn't evolved that much. Um, and again, I haven't read a ton of it, so I know there were some good things. Like, I think the Frankencastle um, period that I mentioned was great. I know the Steve Dillon uh, Punisher Max series, Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon, was well-received. But this feels like they're really pushing it. They're really trying to do something different with him. And it might not work. But I appreciate that they're trying at least. So uh, I really enjoyed it. And I thought the art was fantastic. So, uh, okay. Next book I'm going to talk about is from Dark Horse. I don't usually get to talk about Dark Horse books because I don't get press previews for them. Hopefully that's going to change soon. Um, but the fact that I'm doing this a little later, I get to loop in a, a series that I've been reading. Um, but I haven't, you know, I don't read it until Wednesday when, uh, when it comes out. So this is uh, Last Flight Out, which is written by Mark, written and co-created, I should say, by Mark Guggenheim. If that name sounds familiar, he was one of the producers on the Arrow television series, as well as I think some other uh, of the CW superhero uh, shows. Uh, The art is by Eduardo Ferragato. Colors are by Natalia Marquez. Letters and design by Diego Sanchez. So this is a fantastic story. I cannot stress how great it is. I also love the Eduardo Ferragato art. When he, the way he draws people, I don't know if he's using like famous people or actors or whatnot as, as reference, but the way he draws them and, and the voices kind of the character acting that we get in the art. And then the kind of the narrative voice we get from Mark Guggenheim. Like I, I I can't help when I read this uh, book but the fan cast, like, oh, in the movie, uh, this person, I, I want to see this character played by this actor and this character is going to be played by this actor. And yeah, it, it just, I don't know, it comes across so well. So anyway, the story itself is about the Earth 
uh, it's what's called a dead planet or a death planet or planet death, something like that, uh, where it's going to end real soon, like real soon. And so the main character um, has created the, his name's Ben uh, K. Wood, and he's created, uh, he's a genius kind of just, uh, you know, off the charts smart. And he's built these arcs called the Tevit Noah and they're going to evacuate as many people off earth as, as possible. And they're, when the series starts, they're like 24 hours away from the last arc launching. But, um, you know, this character Ben has spent his whole life dedicated to this project of building these arcs to the point that he's been a, a very bad father. He's been a terrible absentee father for his daughter, uh, who survived a car accident when she was very, very young. But her mother did not. Ben's wife did not survive. So they're estranged. They've been estranged. And, you know, there's less than 24 hours and she doesn't show up to the arc, the last flight, the last flight out. That's where the, the title comes from. And so Ben goes looking for her in this kind of no man's land uh, of of Chicago, where it's martial law and kind of uh, anarchy reigns and there's no social services, you know, complete breakdown of, of society based on the fact that the, everybody expects the planet to, to basically, you know, blow up or whatever uh, in a very short period of time. So the clock is ticking and it gives the story this real sense of stakes and consequences and tension because in your mind that, that, uh, that clock is always ticking. And then, Within this setting, Guggenheim does a fantastic job of giving us the interpersonal drama of father-daughter, uh, uh, Ben and his his uh, mentee, which is actually his daughter's boyfriend. Uh, they have a relationship. He's maybe the second smartest guy on the planet after Ben. Um, so there's there's drama there. There's some almost almost a father-son dynamic there especially because this guy his name's alex drummond he is dating uh, sarah ben's daughter um it's almost like a son-in-law sort of thing so there's there's all these different character dynamics and all these different ideas and again the clock is always ticking so those stakes are always there so it's a fantastic series i cannot stress enough how good the series is and yeah i, I really and i'm not just saying this because guggenheim is you know a television executive or, or tele, has worked in televisions as a producer and writer and whatnot, but man, I really want to see this on the, on the small screen or the big screen. Even I'd love to see a, a live action movie. I, well, I'll probably have to be a, either like a four hour movie or they have to do a couple of, couple of installments, but I think it would work even better as like a, you know, 13 issue or 13 episode um, series would be just fantastic. And the other thing that we get in the series, I really like throughout the, the entire, this is issue five. There's one issue left. Uh, but throughout the series, we've gotten these text pieces that show up. They're like news articles, or there'll be military memos or things like that, that add a lot of context uh, as well. So um, I can't really, um, I can't really say enough. Like the, this, this book was going to be on my list for best of 2022. Cause it really is that good um, from the, from the art, to the writing, to the color work, um, pacing, especially the pacing. Uh, like I said, it, you always have that sense of stakes because the clock is ticking for the earth. So definitely recommend you guys picking that up. Uh, okay. Another 
Marvel book is up next. This uh, Spider-Man Beyond series is continuing. We saw last time uh, ended on a bit of a, a cliffhanger as Peter and Ben had teamed up and they were trying to take out the warehouse in Brooklyn. I think it was where the Beyond Corporation has been running a villains program. Um, but Ben wants to go take out Maxine Danger, the head of Beyond on her own. In order to do that, he needs to have Ben and the uh, Colleen Wing and Misty Knight, Daughters of the Dragon. He needs them distracted in a way. So he opens up this door Z um, and it, it's the lizard who's behind there. <laughs> and so, but a, a giant in a giant form. Uh, and so that's where this issue picks up. So this one's um, plotted by Kelly Thompson. Jed McKay does the script. Frank Gallen, Sarah Pacelli, and Z. Carlos are the artists. Brian Raber on colors. Joe Caramagna on letters. Uh, we find out that this is not just the lizard. Uh, it's just, and, and the heroes are talking about that as they're fighting. It's like, this doesn't just seem like regular Kirk Connors lizard. It seems like there's something else going on. And so we, we find out the answer for that, which leads to even more people kind of teaming up. We see Ben making his way to beyond to try to get those memories back. We see that Ben realizes how detrimental it's been for him to have those memories removed, which I find really interesting that he has such self-awareness. Um, so I, again, I really like the pacing. This is a fun story. The beyond story has been, um, it's been a real palate cleanser for what came before. It does still have stakes and it does feel serious, but there's still a joy in reading it. Unlike kind of the slog that, um, the whole kindred storyline that just went on way too long kind of became so uh, again really curious to see how this all plays out i think there's two issues left maybe three so i'm really enjoying uh, amazing spider-man um if there's anything i don't like about this issue just to kind of nitpick a little bit uh, again i read off a lot of artists and uh, i don't I wasn't a big fan of the art here. The art felt inconsistent and also the color work. Um, and this might be a complaint I've had about the whole beyond storyline. Um, and it's been this way for a while in Spider-Man. Again, I keep going back to the idea that Spider-Man should be a really fun comic. You know, it's a, it's a series that should celebrate the joys of comics. And even though with the whole idea of, you know, great power comes great responsibility and Peter can be sort of, serious sometimes and, and wallow in self-pity and you know he always has things that don't break his way i think you can still color the the comic in very primary colors to give it a classic superhero feel because it should feel that way in my mind like and maybe it just goes back to kind of my favorite era of spider-man from like i don't know issue 290 like why not let's say 298 when mcfarland jumped on right like up through his art eric larson's art uh mark bagley's art you know the, that's kind of a golden era 300 to 400 let's say where it was and maybe it was the 90s and everything was colored brightly but it really worked you know even the clone saga stuff as dark as that story was at times was brightly colored and i think it works i think spider-man's a comic that should be brightly colored reminds us of how classic the character is so 
Okay, next up, another Marvel title. Um, and I, I have to admit that I'm not fully up to speed on my Peggy Carter history. Uh, Captain Carter, uh, again, this is the character played by Haley Atwell in, in the movies, which, you know, I enjoyed her well enough in uh, in the first Captain America movie. But the whole idea of her being, I think, the grandmother for Sharon Carter, who Steve Rogers gets, um, you know, gets uh, involved with later on. Again, sometimes it's okay for characters to just die and go away, uh, but we can never have that in comics. And, you know, to, not to beat a dead horse and talk about something I've mentioned twice already before in this episode, but yeah, it kind of in my mind, it diminish it diminishes, and again, this has been diminished for a long time. But the impact of any death, right? You take it all with a grain of salt, and comics are just kind of bring it back. But plus, it's like not everybody can, does. Anybody ever stay dead? You know what I mean? Like, and it, it kind of, I don't know, it diminishes the stories where they, the impact of the stories where they die. Like, why should I care? You're just going to bring them back anyway. Plus, the whole kind of retcon thing as well. That's kind of weird, but. Regardless, she's back. Uh, it's written by Jamie McKelvey, who also designed her costume, which looks pretty cool, I have to admit. Marika Cresta is the artist. Eric Arsenega does colors. Clayton Callan letters. This is a lot of setup. You know, she she gets found frozen in ice for 80 years. Sound familiar? Yeah, very derivative origin uh, for her and it's a little bit of a fish out of the water story. She's being pressured by the prime minister. You know, Britain doesn't have enough uh, superheroes on their own. So they really want her to step up and she's not sure if she wants to, she's still trying to come to terms with the fact that her family's gone and uh, she feels, you know, out of place when uh, some circumstances happen that, that sort of force her into the role of a hero and we'll see where it goes from there. I don't know. It looks like Hydra may play a role and, and the whole fish out of water kind of thing. Uh, woman out of time, I guess you'd say. Seems like it's going to play a, a pretty big factor as well. So I don't know. Again, I, I really liked her in that first Captain America movie, but I feel like she she's a character that belongs in that time. Like I would have been fine if you brought brought her back and you know told s- stories in the context of World War II. I'd rather that than have her in modern times. I don't know. I just don't know that it's working for me. So again, got to give everything at least two issues. So I'll check out the next one. I do. I do like the art. I think Jamie McKelvey, who's a fantastic artist, is underrated as a a storyteller. So it's not there's not anything technically wrong with the comic. I thought it was well scripted and well paced. I just question the choice of, of bringing her back into the modern world. Just I don't know if it's for me. Uh, okay, up next we have Moon Knight. This is a Devil's Reign tie-in. I could have sworn we already got a Moon Knight Devil's Reign tie-in, but I don't know. Maybe I'm misremembering. Anyway, it's written by the regular Moon Knight writer, Jed McKay. The art is by Federico Sabatini. Colors are by Lee Luffridge. Letters by Corey Petit. Um, This is pretty solid. I've enjoyed the Moon Knight series we've gotten from Jed McKay. This is very much in that same kind of tone. Um, it does lean into the fact that, he, yeah, so supposedly Mark Spector's is insane, and I I don't care for that take, but Marvel seems to want to go in that direction and, and have been for quite a while. 
uh, I guess, to make Moon Knight unique, not just some Batman carbon copy. At least uh, I guess that's what editorial fears. So this issue does a good job of kind of exploring that idea of Moon Knight being, I don't want to say crazy, but being off center, let's say, and how dangerous that makes him and how much he embraces it and how much he uses it and how formidable of a fighter he really is. So not sure why this didn't, and maybe what I'm thinking of when I said, I thought there was already a one shot. I think what I must've been thinking of was we already had a Moon Knight issue of the regular series that crossed, that was a devil's reign crossover. Uh, so I'm not sure why this didn't just show up in the regular Moon Knight series. Cause it, it doesn't, it's not like it has anybody else in it. Um, but I don't know, maybe people are reluctant to pick, pick that up because, um, you know, it's not a number one or whatever, but this definitely stands on its own. You don't need to have been reading the Moon Knight series, uh, in order to pick this up and enjoy it. Um, but if you do, you'll have more context for this. So uh, this was okay. The art wasn't quite as polished as I as I like. Um, I think McKay is finding a good balance between uh, you know a Moon Knight that I that I'm enjoying a little more in terms of not leaning too far into the craziness. You know, we're not getting psychedelic. We're not getting stories where we don't know what's real and what's not. Is he hallucinating? Is hearing voices? It, it's it's a little more straightforward than that. But um, kind of the threat level of who Moon Knight is, is being ramped up, which I, I do uh, appreciate. Because I think there have been times where he, he hasn't come across as being very strong. You know, like I think back, and I really liked it when he was in the, uh, he was a member of the West Coast Avengers. But I don't think that they used him as well as they could have. You know, he came across as one of the weaker members. Uh, anyway, up next, another Devil's Reign tie-in, Superior 4, number 3. This is written by Zach Thompson. We have art by David Tinto, colors by Matt Milla, letters by Ariana Mayer. I did see some people that didn't really care for this. This is the final issue. I really did. I like the idea of Dr. Octopus, uh, you know, grasping for power by basically creating a team of Doc Ox um, who have basically taken over other heroes. So just like the Dr. Octopus of 616 took over Spider-Man, we have a, an Otto Octavius that's taken over Hulk. We have an Otto Octavius that's taken over Wolverine. We have another one that's taken over Ghost Rider. So even though these are Otto Octavius, they're they're him in, in different bodies and they're taking on the Supreme Octopus who's basically uh, Otto in the body of Doom, but also... Baron Von Strucker. <laughs> so it's almost a mashup of three characters. Um, he calls himself Otto Werner Von Strange. Uh, so I guess Dr. Strange as well, when you want to think about him being the Supreme Octopus, it's the, the, part of the Supreme titles because he's Sorcerer Supreme of his own world. So um, I didn't find the third issue to be quite as fun uh, of a read as the first two. It got a little... I don't want to say complicated, but it 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 was it just wasn't quite as lighthearted. Which you know it's okay to get kind of serious, but um, I don't know. It, it didn't. It, it wasn't all there. It's still good, 
but I, I really enjoyed the first two issues, uh, especially the first issue. And this one wraps everything up with with good answers, but it I don't know. It I like this idea of Doctor Octopus sometimes being. And this sounds so hypocritical because I, I, you know, I, I complain when villains aren't complex enough. I was just talking about um, Sabretooth, you know, being a, a mustache twirling villain, um, and really, you know, with Dan Slott with what he did with Superior Spider-Man, in a way, it leveled up Doctor Octopus, and he, you know, he is a very smart guy. But I almost feel like sometimes they lean too far into that aspect of the character now. It's okay sometimes for him to just be like the classic Doc Ock. And I, I get it. You still want to give him motivations or whatever. But sometimes he, he comes across as the stories about him and his thought process. Um, it's almost too complicated in a way. You know, it's maybe the story is a little overly complicated with all these different Doc Ox and their different motivations and what they're trying to do with the multiverse. And, you know, well, if this one chooses to do this and it's going to impact this, this way. And, you know, it, it got a little convoluted at the end. And I think that's why I didn't quite, it didn't quite enjoy it as much as the first, the first issue was the simplest. And I think it was the best. Um, and although I did enjoy the series overall, I think I might've enjoyed it even a little more had it not been quite so you know, I mean, we're talking, we're jumping around to Earth, you know, 5670 and Earth 8920. It's like, eh, it can stand to be a little less convoluted in my mind. But overall, I think it did work. The visuals by David Tinto are absolutely fantastic. They're so good. Seeing these different versions of Doc Ock, like, it's just a lot of fun, you know, like a Hulk with, with you know, six arms. That just looks cool. So, uh, it definitely is worth reading, especially if you're a big fan of Dr. Octopus. Uh, okay, up next, another image title. We have the final issue of King of Spies. This is written by uh, Mark Miller. The art is by Matteo Scalera. Colors by Giovanni Nero. Giovanna Nero, I should say. Clem Robbins does the letters. This has been a really fun title. You know, it's about this guy who was a spy for his whole life, 25, over 25 years out in the field, you know, during the late 80s and early uh, or throughout the 90s, I should say. Um, and he finds out that he's dying of cancer and he only has six months to live. And he realizes that he, when he looks around at the world that he helped create by doing all these missions for the British intelligence, that the world is not what he would like it to be. And it's, it's partly because of the guys calling the shots and, and the orders that he followed. And he feels like there's injustice there, you know, and, you know, he's had some philosophical conversations with some people and they're talking like, you know, things aren't so bad. Most people have a roof over their head and food to eat. And, you know, it really shouldn't matter that some of these missions he's gone on or even more so missions he's not gone on people. He's not been able to take out because they're powerful and they're connected. And even though they're doing terrible things, um, and so he takes it upon himself to uh, to take them out. You know, he's he no longer has to worry um, about the consequences because he's a dead man walking. So this guy, Roland King, who is king of the spies, that's where the name comes from. You know, he's gone on this mission to take 
uh, to take these people out. So it's been super violent, as you would expect. It feels very much like a Mark Miller comic. And uh, even though he doesn't always work with the same artist, uh, and the art by the line work by Matteo Scalero is very good. A lot of times his books are colored uh, with a certain aesthetic, which is definitely not very bright, um, almost like this brown or uh, just just a, a filter over it that, that kind of dulls and mutes everything, uh, brownish or yellow or orange or, uh, yeah, just like this the shading to it um, that again makes it feel like it's recognizable as a very much a Mark Miller book. So this was a fun book. Um, but I do have to say that the final issue was probably my least favorite. Um, not because it ends the series, but just because it felt a little anticlimactic. Uh, usually I'm expecting a big, over-the-top ending to a Mark Miller story. And in a way, it had this, but it was almost like that was tacked on. Um, and it, it, the series kind of ended um, with a whimper, in a way. Um, didn't have a real impactful ending. So I don't know if Miller was trying to do something a little different, a little more emotional, because there is a lot of emotion uh, with the way that this all plays out. Uh, and it is double-sized, so I did appreciate that. You definitely feel like you get a big chunk of story. But I don't know. It didn't end on a, on an upswing. But I still think overall the series is a lot of fun. If you're a fan of Mark Miller, you're going to like this. Um, you know, If you're a fan of things like uh, Wanted uh, or uh, uh, The King's Man, you're going to like this because it's definitely in that, that same uh, wheelhouse. So... Uh, all right. Up next, another image title. It's The Good Asian. This is from writer Pornsack Pichichote, uh, Alexander Tefegni on art, Lee Luffridge on colors, Jeff Powell on letters and design. I think this is the next to last issue of the story. And uh, this is issue nine. I think there's one, maybe two. I know they got um, more issues out of it than, uh, than they initially planned. But be that as it may, it's it's a good story. It's very noirish. You know, it's the story of this uh, Asian detective in the time of the Chinese uh, Exclusion Act in uh, the 1930s, which prevents Chinese uh, Chinese people of Chinese descent from coming to the U.S. And this guy, Edison Hark, the main character, is very much a man between two worlds, not accepted by either one because he has a foot in each. You know, the Asians don't trust him because he's like works for the police department. One of the only Asian detectives in, in all of America, even though he's in Hawaii. He's in, this series is set in San Francisco. So the Asians don't trust him because they see him as a puppet of the man. And the, the whites don't trust him because he's Asian. So he's he's rejected by both sides. So uh, it's been a very interesting uh, story from a his, historical perspective but also leans way into the crime noir and there's lots of twists and turns and people betraying people and whatnot. Uh, the art by Al Alexander Tefegni is absolutely fantastic. Um, and even though we've gotten some answers to the central mystery, uh, Pornsack Pichichote hasn't, he hasn't stopped pulling the rug out from under us yet. 
Like we're still getting twists and turns. We're still trying to understand the mystery and the motivations and who's behind what and, and all that. So it's definitely going to be a book that I'm going to have to go back and reread once I have all the issues um, just to make sure that I, I understand uh, exactly what's happening. And definitely a, a very dense story, a very rich story, especially with the, the art by Tefegni, which is, uh, captures the the tone and the feel very, very well. Uh, and the other thing that I want to mention in the back of this issue, there's an interview that uh, Peach's Show does with fellow comic creator Jeremy Holt, who's been on the show to talk about his Made in Korea series. Uh, and they're both Asian writers. And so they have a unique kind of perspective on that. And the conversation they have with each other is, is very interesting. So if you do pick it up, definitely don't skip that interview because it's, it's very much worth your time. Uh, okay. Last book I'm going to talk about is Devil's Reign, number five of six. So this is written by Chip Zdarsky. We have art by Marco Cicchetto. Colors are by Marcio Menez. Letters by Clayton Cowles. Um, it's been out there everywhere. And it was in a way even spoiled last week by what we saw in Darede uh, Daredevil Woman Without Fear. But that being said, I'm not going to spoil the big, I'm not going to mention the big part of this book, the way this book ends on a, on a cliffhanger. Um, what I will say is, man, am I sick of the Kingpin. I'm so sick of the Kingpin as mayor of New York, getting away with everything, corrupt government, like, I mean, I'm sorry, but at some point, I mean, these are heroes that are in New York in the Marvel Universe, right? Like at some point, as much illegal stuff as the Kingpin has been doing as mayor, can nobody catch this guy at some point doing what he's doing? Like I, I'm almost to the point of the Joker with the Kingpin. I just I need him to go away and I need to not read about any more Kingpin for a while. Can we just take him off the playing field for a while? Cause I'm really tired of the Kingpin. Um, it, it just, again, not, there's not, no complexity. There's no, there's no relatability to the character. He's just a two dimensional thug who keeps winning for no other reason than a plot device. And it's not clever and it's not fun. And, you know, I, I've talked about this Devil's Reign series feeling like, um, you know, very derivative, much like Civil War. Um, so all that being said, am I enjoying it? Yeah, I mean, I am still enjoying it. Would be enjoying it more, I think, if it was somebody other than Kingpin. But Zdarsky does bring stakes and he does bring emotion. And I am enjoying it. But at the end of the day, when it's resolved, I hope the kingpin goes away. At least stop being mayor. At least go back to you know everybody knowing he's a crook or a criminal or he's in jail or something. Um, but there's a lot of action in this issue, and we get a lot of um, we get a lot of uh, Mike Murdoch in this issue, <laughs> which is kind of fun. You know this character that technically doesn't exist or shouldn't exist in the Marvel universe. 
So that's a lot of fun. Um, and he, like maybe the most relatable or the most human that Mike Murdoch has ever been uh, is in this issue. Uh, we also see Purple Man get leveled up. That's a lot of fun. And uh, it definitely is teasing a, a crazy finale because uh, this is the next to last issue of, uh, of Devil's Reign. So yeah, I'm sick of the Kingpin, but you know, all credit to Zdarsky for crafting a story that is like, I'm, I'm totally hooked. There's no way I wouldn't read the last issue. I really want to know how this all plays out. And uh, the Marco Cicchetto art, I mean, there, there's a lot of action, a lot of action in this issue. Tons of fights between the Thunderbolts and the champions and the Avengers and, and all that. So it definitely works on, on that level for sure. Um, okay. I guess that's going to do it for, for the single issues. Um, I will give a rundown of some of the other books that you might want to be on the lookout for um, in case you haven't gone to your comic shop. Again, apologies for this being late, everybody. Uh, from Aftershock, there's uh, We Live, Age of the Paladins. There's a black issue and a white issue. They're, they are different, uh, so you're going to want to pick up both. I don't know why they did it that way. Um, and honestly, I, I tried to read them. But I feel like I need to go back and reread the first We Live story uh, series because I, I I think I didn't either I didn't finish reading it or I've just forgotten it. So I'm, I'm definitely going to go check that out. Um, from AWA, we have the second issue of Primos, which uh, I know a lot of people have been enjoying. So I wanted to mention that. And there's also a new series from AWA starting called Hit Me. Um, which is uh, written by Krista Faust. And um, <laughs> it sounds really, really weird. It, it, it talks about, it's about this woman named Lulu and she gets paid by the bruise. So I don't really know what that means. Like, is she an enforcer? Is she, yeah, I, I don't know but it, it sounds really weird and out there. Um, you know, interesting female protagonist written by a, a female writer. So curious to see what that's about. Uh, let's see, over at Boom, we have Seven Secrets, number 15 from Tom Taylor that I'll mention. Uh, at Dark Horse, in addition to that book that I highly recommend, The Last Flight Out, we also have uh, another book called uh, Apache Delivery Service, which is a four-issue mini. We're up to issue three. It's written by Matt Kent. Tyler Jenkins does the art. And it's uh, it's a Vietnam War story, which has been getting uh, a lot of great critical reviews. So I thought I'd mention it. Don't forget, if you're look, looking for DC reviews, you're wondering, hey, how come you didn't talk about any DC books? We do the DC books on Tuesday, the day they come out with spoilers. So if you go listen to our DC Spotlight, be aware there are tons of spoilers. But we did talk about all the DC books that came out this week. Uh, Batgirls number four, Batman Urban Legends number 13, Detective Comics number 1056, Future State Gotham is up to number 11. I Am Batman number seven was fantastic. Now that Jace Fox is out from under the shadow of Batman, he's out of Gotham City, he's in New York. That John Ridley series is just hitting on all cylinders. 
Joker number 13 was probably my favorite DC book of the week. It was absolutely fantastic. Only one issue of that left. We got the second issue of Justice League versus Legion of Superheroes. Naomi finally returned in uh, Naomi season two, number one, which has a ton of family drama and was really, really good. Nubia and the Amazons, number six of six, is the second uh, chapter of the Trial of the Amazons. We did a, a separate Trial of the Amazons spotlight that has part one and two. Um, Superman, Son of Kal-El, number nine, which is written by Tom Taylor, has art by Bruno Redondo, who normally does the art for Nightwing. That that was a heck of a lot of fun too. That might be my favorite. Um, might be my favorite of the week. I don't know that one or Joker. It's it's like tied. They're both really really good. So much humor and heart in that Superman Son of Kal El. My favorite issue of that series so far by far. Uh, Superman versus Lobo number three from Tim Seeley. I did talk to Tim. Um, there's an episode that came out Tuesday. We talked about. Uh, his King Shark series. We talked about Superman versus Lobo. We talked about his Robin series that's coming out. We talked about his Zoop campaign for some of his first ever creator-owned work that he did. I encourage you go check that out. He gives a lot of insight into his thoughts on Superman versus Lobo. Uh, Trial of the Amazons, number one of two, as I mentioned, is in a separate spotlight episode. We talk about that and we talk about Nubia. So you can check that out if you're curious. Uh, okay, over at image in addition to the books that we talk about we have ant number three from eric larson we also had little monsters number one from the frequent collaborators jeff lemire and dustin Wynn. i meant to read that and i i forgot i i, I forgot it was by jeff lemire and i i just just spaced on it so sorry i don't have any thoughts on that one but i uh, definitely plan on reading that uh, also spawn number 327 is out this week from Marvel, in addition to the books that we talked about, we have, let's see, did I, no, I didn't talk about everything. No, uh, Eternals number 10 uh, is out. Also, Hawkeye, Kate Bishop, number 505, brings that miniseries to a close. Um, let's see. I talked about Spider-Gwen. Oh, Star Wars, Han Solo and Chewbacca, number one, and also Star Wars Crimson Rain number three of five, as well as Strange Adventures, number 17. Oh, yeah, there's a new issue of Thor that people were really raving about. I don't, again, I don't read Thor, uh, but I know a lot of people are talking about that. Women of Marvel, number one. It's another book that a lot of people were talking about. Venom is up to number six. And X-Men Legends had its 12th issue come out this week as well. So uh, I think that's it for uh, other books you might want to be on the lookout for. Um, again, apologies that this didn't come out until very, very late on Wednesday night. Uh, but hope you guys get a chance to check out some of the books that I mentioned. Also, don't forget, we recently put out our best of 2021. Uh, if you're looking for some great books from last year that you may have missed out on or some new series where you can... Uh, Check them out on Marvel Unlimited or DC Unlimited or whatever it's called, DC Infinite or whatever, or just uh, series that are you know completed that you can find in trade. Tons of great creators and tons of great series that we talked about on that uh, awards show. So go and check it out. Um, that's going to do it for this episode. As always, we want to thank everybody for listening and we'll talk to you next time. 
You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.